From the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. This is a companion podcast to the Reader's Serial Fiction Show. If you haven't listened to today's story, we'd encourage you to pause and go listen to episode 5 of the companion podcast first. We can only play half the episode, so if you like what you hear, check out the full episode free on Vela. The link to the podcast and the Vela episode are in the show notes. So Christine, how's your week been? I'm sure not as exciting as yours. I put up porch lights. That was like the highlight of my week. So that's not very exciting. You would, Is you there know, a pun intended to that? No, there is no pun in that. <laughs> That's just, I strung up porch lights because my porch has been unusable for uh, night reading for like eight years. So I'm like, I guess I should really do something about that. Now I can use my porch for night reading and writing. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. And just steady progress on the writing and stuff. So that's been good. But you had far more fun this weekend than I did. You went to... A writer's event. I did. It's a writer's event called Witches of Salem. Got together with a group of, I can't, I don't know the number, so I apologize. I think it's like 12 to 15 authors. And we devised a story world revolving around witches, and we're all going to write short stories in them. That sounds fantastic. Do you know what Mm. you're going to write for your story already? You you came up with all the world building and the ideas and all of that? Yeah, so what kind of goes down in these, it's hosted by Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon, and they're going to do a ton more of these. They've already done Rock Apoc, which was an like apocalyptic event for uh, Cleveland, Ohio, that we devised a world-building thing. Sci-Fi Seattle was a sci-fi story. Then they're going to be doing a Vampires of New Orleans and some other really cool events that um, they haven't announced yet. But basically, the you're there for a day and a half where you're actually like working together as a group and you devise the story world. And then part of that is you can throw out pitches uh, using the three story method and kind of the, the Pixar pitch method of that. And then the group can kind of give feedback. It turns into this really awesome writer's room where, you know, you're brainstorming with other people and like the only thing that you get out of it is a better story, in my opinion. And so, yes, I do have a uh, story idea which ties in with my co-writer and my world for uh, the six-book series that we're working on. Oh, fantastic. That's great. So your co-writer for your six-book series, that's awesome. Was also there. Yes, and he was also there. So we're going to get two short stories for our story world out of this. So that's pretty Yeah, that's so fun. So do you have a deadline? Like, when do you have to be done with your story? We don't yet, only because we, uh, we may be trying to push for a sooner deadline as a collective group, depending on when we want to release it. But we're probably looking at like an October-ish deadline. Okay. So we've got, we've got plenty of time. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's lots of time to write a short story. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, and um, my serial progress is starting back up again because I decided at the end of June 
that I needed to write a short story for the villains uh, anthology that Sasha Black is doing. So in yes. like two and a half weeks. Yes, which I read and loved. Oh, yeah. editing. <laughs> Good. That is a great story. I like to say I love the world building in that story. It was fantastic. So I hope that is coming out soon so that everyone can read it. Excellent. So yes, I'm 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 headed back to the serial track is where I was getting at. <laughs> nice. But you just skip awesome. right over debauchery. There's no writing debauchery. I can cut this part out later. <laughs> oh, there was plenty of writing debauchery. We yeah, we went and we so the best part about these events is the like one-on-one, which is why I really like um Jay and Zach's approach on this, where they have a group of about 15 people getting together because I was able to talk with everyone and we would have, you know, some of us would go to dinner and lunch together, or we would try to go as a big collective to all these things. And we would also then have little meetups at the end of the night. I remember going to a conference with like 170 people and I felt like that was too many people and I didn't get to meet everybody. And so I can't even imagine like bigger conferences. And I feel like for me, my personal like progress, the, the approach that I like is being able to meet and connect with as many people as possible in a, on a deeper level. And so this smaller group of 15, it's like you, I feel so connected to this group of people. Yeah. So you can get some more meaningful interaction than just kind of the, the superficial, okay. you know, business card interaction. Fun. And now was Chris at this one? Cause that is your Yes. Other co-host, and I believe it's the first time you met in person. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, she is just as crazy as she is uh, online. So Fantastic. we immediately, like, we already click, but it was, it was like meeting an old friend. Aww. So it was perfect. Those are the best. That sounds great. Sounds like it's a great time. Very, you know, energizing to hang out with writers, and sounds like all your writing is on track. So fantastic. Yeah. So many things. And now I just need to lay down and stare at a ceiling for a short period of time. <laughs> Seriously, recharge those batteries. Mm-hmm. Well. Well, should we yeah. talk to our author? Yes, I think we should. Okay. So as a starting off point, we've looked at the scene using some of the basics from three-story method. You don't need to be familiar with three-story method at all for this podcast, but if you want to learn more about it, the link is in the show notes. With us today is Shiva Kumar. We'll be discussing his far future mythic science fiction serial, The Lanka Chronicles. So uh, we took a look at your, your scene in terms of the three-story method, which you don't have to be familiar with, but we're just going to use that as kind of like a template. And the first thing about that is armature, which is also known as theme. So the Ramayana includes uh, teachings about goals of human life. It depicts duties, relationships, portraying those ideal characters. Is that something that you you process or you think through as you're writing? Is that something that's in the forefront or is that just something you've internalized over a long period of time? I would say closer to the latter. I mean, I've grown up with the story all my life. As a child, my father used to tell me episodes from the story. And in India, every year at a certain point, there's a festival called Dashera. It is a 10-day festival, and it's a storyteller festival. And in every village all across India, the, the storyteller will come and sit down every evening from, say, 8 to 10. And he would relate the Ramayana from beginning all the way to the end. And all the kids of all the little villages and towns would sit and listen, at the end of which 
the, the big moment of reveal is Ravana, who was the evil king, and his brother and his son, the three evils, would be huge effigies about 60 foot tall with firecrackers inside of them, and they would light them up and they would all burn in the night. And that was like a visual treat, you know? So we knew that this story was the part and parcel of the fabric of almost every Indian's life. But as a kid who has, who has grown up in other places also and listening to the story where most people take his godhood to be granted, I was always like, eh, I'm not so sure I agree with that. And I'm not sure I agree with the things he did. And why do we gloss over the fact because he's a god, he's able to get away with it? So I was trying to approach it saying, okay, if these were human beings and they did these things, would there not be some consequences to their actions? And if so, how would they deal with it? And that was sort of the impetus of this. So yes, I know that he's the ideal prince, the ideal king, the ideal this, but no, not really. He did a lot of bad things. And Sita was really in, in a very, in that world, she ended up bearing the brunt of it. So here I thought, well, let's, let's reverse it a little bit. It's what happens to her and how she ascends that causes his machismo to sort of withdraw because he doesn't know how to handle it. She's like way more powerful and way more aware of, of eternal values than he is. So he's struggling with that. So that was some of my way of approaching this. I thought that your name choice for your protagonist, Dharma, was really interesting. I believe it means the righteous path. So is that something that you were consciously weaving into theme while you were writing? So, you know, when I wrote the story first, I had kept the original names of all the characters. And when my wife read it and some other people read it, they were like, they know the story so well with the name of the original characters that they were like, it's, it's hard for me to really connect because I'm still thinking of the traditional story. And I just, you know, it's like if Arthur, King Arthur was suddenly brought to present day and he's still called King Arthur and she's called Guinevere, but they're dressed in suits and ties and everybody's like, oh, that's kind of weird. So I, I played with that. So I started changing the main characters' names. So Rama becomes Dharma. Now, Dharma is, as you said, also the name in, in the Mahabharata of the most righteous of the Mahabharata Pandavas. His name is Dharmaraj, Yudhishthira. And I thought giving him that name because he is known as the righteous one, but he's struggling with that. So that was why I called him that. Lakshmana, the brother, I changed his name to Lokesh, which I then short-formed Loki. Loki, of course, is very popular right now, and I thought Loki would be cool. To call him Loki would be great. Sita, I changed to Arya, and Arya is another very sort of important name. It's sort of the, one of the first uh, female beings of, of Indian mythology. So, uh, so all three of them still have the general attributes, but they have different names. But yes, Dharma was a conscious choice. In terms of character wants and needs and the lies that they, they can tell themselves, your protagonist, we, we kind of see that they want Arya to, in the way that they remember her, and that they almost need it in the sense of accepting her as she is, which was kind of an interesting dichotomy or, or thing to see within the scene was this way of uh, wanting her in the way that he had remembered her, but then in the end, finally accepting that. Do you, when you write, do you consider character wants and needs and how that's displayed on the page? I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I wrote this first, I have to be honest, it was a stream of consciousness. Um, there's a little background I'll give you. I was going through a difficult illness in 2015. Um, it was cancer, and I was essentially going to chemotherapy every day. 
And I was thinking about what, and right before I started the cancer treatment, I was, I had, I had seen a movie called Sita Sings the Blues. It's an animated film done by, by an American or, or white artist i'm not sure if she's american but she was but she she wrote about her own plight and the issues she was facing and then equated it to sita and it's an animated film it's actually beautiful that's when i started thinking about what how would rama uh, uh, deal with this so when i was going through this chemotherapy i started writing the scenes out and it became an obsession and for that whole time that i was in the middle of this treatment Every time I'd get in chemotherapy, I would start writing and the story just started flowing out and I literally felt like I was a conduit and I just had to put it down. So it was a stream of consciousness. I just poured it all out and then I went back and started, you know, structuring it. So at that point, I didn't write with any knowledge of any of the things that I now know about these issues, even POV. I had no idea what, you know, I, I just, I just wrote. Luckily, I had a template because I knew the story and there are books. And so I literally went to the books and I looked at each chapter and said, okay, I need to take this chapter and change it. So there was an existing skeleton that I was luckily working with. So I didn't have to invent it from, you know, whole cloth. But then I went back and, and I tried to approach each of those characters and say, okay, what does each one want? Am I, you know, delivering what they want in each chapter? And now that I have a chance to get on Vela and I'm looking at each as an episode, it's good because I just look at that episode and say, in this episode, am I delivering what is needed? And I've heard people who say that, you know, they try to keep each of the word count consistent. Since I've sort of pre-written it, it's not consistent. They're all within 5,000. They're all above 1,000, but they hover between 1,500 to 4,500, you know, but that's... That's how the chapters told themselves that they wanted to be. So just follow that. That makes sense. So I'm curious, as you write screenplays as well, how you approach scene construction. I've heard screenwriters talk about a turning point or a point where the scene turns on a conflict. Is that something that you consciously think about when you're writing? Well, I visualize, I see everything. Uh, I'm literally writing what I'm seeing. So to some extent, as I see it, I'm kind of like just putting it down. So in my head, it's a movie. And all the, every book I'm writing is a movie, first and foremost. Then I have to bring the writerly part of it into it. So I've got the description, I've got the look, I've got the feel. But in this case, I'm sort of an omnipresent narrator. I can see everything, I can feel everything. Now I've got to start moving the lens closer and closer and decide, okay, in this chapter, who is really the one viewing? And that's been the journey where I see this whole thing as if, you know, God is watching all of it. But then you got to narrow it down and get it to each individual character. And so what I now try and do, so the, the lucky thing that I have here with Maya's perspective, Maya is a sentient AI who is viewing all of this. She has certain skills. She is, in a sense, an omnipotent narrator because she's able to go into the dreams and the memories of dharma and pull everything out and and loki and all of the data that exists on everything that has been done before are all in her memory banks so she's able to extrapolate and connect everything to be able to form a picture that otherwise wouldn't how would she know this well she knows this because she's put all of these pieces together so that gave me the flexibility to say I can have her look into things that there's no way Rama would know this or, or Dharma would know this, but 
Loki does. Or there was a newscast, you know, 30 years back that she was able to pull from and was able to connect these things. And so that's how I approach this as a piecemeal. Yeah, I'd love to talk some more about that because when I was reading, I just thought it was really interesting because you start with this close first person narration in the point of uh, my ascension AI, and then it changes to a thir- third person omniscient. So we're going from the narrator into Dharma's memory. And I just thought uh, it was interesting because the, the, it's like the narrator is watching a movie when she does that, or I, I don't know what the gender of your ascension AI is, but I, I, you said Maya, so I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, she's, she's I'll, kind of I'll assume. <laughs> yeah. uh, both Dharma and Loki see her as a she. See, one of the interesting things about and, and this also came from a different story I read. I don't even know which one. But, and it comes a few chapters later. The sentient AI spaceship has to bond, mate, with one pilot. And that pilot happens to be Loki. And Loki and, and uh, Maya become one unit. And in the control panel, there is nothing. He basically enters into this uh, vat of, of um, nano... Uh, nanonutrients and he is connected completely and everything he's doing is is like minority report there's just stuff flashing in front of him but there's no controls and it's like and and maya and he are one so in that case maya is able to see everything that is in loki's brain and loki is able to feel everything he's able to see the inner engine workings and all of that so that was uh, the way in which maya was able to go into the dreams and memories of dharma and see what he is feeling I thought it was a really interesting flipping of a trope in fiction, which is where we're usually starting with the omniscient narrator and then going into a a close third or first person. But this one had it flipped the other way around, which I I just, uh, it stood out to me as as being a really interesting way to tell a story. So I was just wondering if that was something that you were doing intentionally going from a close first person and then maybe mirroring uh, Dharma's memory to more the storytelling of the Ramayana, or if that was something that was also, again, just stream of consciousness and inherent? You know, I wish I could tell you that I thought all of this through very carefully, but I, but I honestly didn't. I did know that I, I wanted to tell the story from Maya's POV, because it gave me the most flexibility, and it allowed me to tell the story from almost dispassionate or questioning mode, which is what my mode was. I was like, why would he do something like this? Or why would this happen? And try to understand it from her point of view. So, and then also I had to get into their brains. And how do I, how do I get into their brains? Because Maya can actually see what's going on in their brains. And so she becomes them. And, as, and that's part of the, the story of her journey. The more she delves into their brains and understands them, she starts becoming more like them. She wants to become human. Her journey is she wants to become aware and human. And that's her journey. And so she's going from this machine that has been constructed by humans to something that is more and beyond. And I won't reveal the end of the story because it is a bit of an aha moment, but her journey parallels his journey towards this moment where, so in book one, you start off with him as an older man and Maya and him on this journey. And then book two spends a lot of time back to when he was a a child, even his grandfather, because it's a, it's a multi-generational saga, his grandfather was the one who designed the space program. And so he's like, you know, it's like the Kennedys, the, the, the Raghavs are the Kennedys or the whatever big, you know, it's Camelot. And they are the ones who have created this, this future for, for all of humanity. 
So they're from a very, very well-known you know, group of families. And so you get back to the history of what happened all the way to him, how he meets Arya, how they end up getting married, how they end up going to this planet, all of that. And then book three comes back to the present time where they now land on the planet as older people to try and find out what happened to Arya. Where is she? That's how it ends. In, in terms of the scene, uh, when we were de- deconstructing it using the three-story method, which compromises of discovering what the conflict choice and consequence are within the scene, I found something kind of interesting that I just want to kind of bring up for listeners. You have your character, uh, Dharma, kind of figuring out how he reacts to the transformation of his wife. And then that choice is that accepting, uh, at least this is how we perceived it, was that he was accepting this transformation and then becoming the consequence of him trapped in this 30-year memory. But in the middle of that, I noticed that there was a moment in which this character was in incapacitated. Uh, ultimately, he was about to die. And that's when his wife came in. And I almost felt like that was in and of itself like a scene within a scene where your main character then quickly became Arya for a moment in which she sees this man who she made a bunch of promises to threatening to end Dharma. And she decides, makes that choice to kill him. And then she and lives with Dharma, you know, kind of at the end of that scene. Um, I just found that a really interesting flip on how we normally see scenes where you kind of included the scene within a scene. And I know that you had mentioned that a lot of this was revolving around a stream of consciousness, but I'm curious if later on, um, how you sort of plan your scenes or do you outline them uh, now or how that goes? Well, since the story is pretty much written, I go back now and I have uh, on Bella, I have 16, 15 uh, episodes up. So what I've done is I've gone to each one of them and I've kind of reworked them, obviously changing the names and reworking things, looking at POV carefully and, and sort of making sure that point, that thing that you mentioned, where you feel like for a moment, Maya is able to see how Dharma saw Arya. You know, so now you've got uh, yet a third point of view looking at his astonishment at seeing his wife and then him looking at his wife who changes from being a goddess to his wife again as she comes down to him, moves his hair gently, kisses him. And at that point, Maya is feeling that connection of this couple as if she were in in that same position. Either Maya is kissing Dharma or uh, Dharma is kissing Maya. Either way, she is feeling that. And part of her confusion is she's feeling all these emotions, but she's a machine and she doesn't know how to act because she's feeling the, the love that's coming out of it. So it, it was conscious in the sense that I was imagining that character feeling it, not conscious in a writerly sense where I was saying, let me change this POV now to this. That, that's not how it was. It was just the situation carried me into her uh, feeling this emotion. That makes sense. It does. There are definitely a lot of layers to this this scene. I just thought that was fantastic. So you said you have about fifteen or sixteen episodes ready to go, and we're still a few weeks away from the Vela Live date. Uh, how are you planning your release schedule? Do you have that set out? How often you're going to release and consistently? Well, you know, I've been talking to a bunch of other people who are Vela authors, and everybody has a different point of view. At the moment, I'm imagining it's going to be one a week. 
since I've had it written, it shouldn't be, it's not like I'm re, I'm not writing brand new stuff every week. I'm taking what has been written, reworking it, cleaning it up, making sure it fits and then throwing it out. So I'm thinking one day, one, once a week, I'll come up with the next episode. Some people are saying, oh, you should be doing it twice a week. I, I, I don't know if that's realistic or not, but, but I'm, yeah, I'm definitely thinking once I get through this 15, I'll just keep adding another one each week. You have any books, methods, or routines that you have found useful while you have been devising this serial? Well, I have been spending a bunch of time on Clubhouse in writers' forums, listening to other writers, uh, and it's it's been a really ex- interesting journey because many of these writers have written multiple books. They have a methodology in, in a way that's very different than mine. And in the conversation that's come back and forth, one of the things that I realize is I'm a filmmaker. That's what I've done for the last 30 years. That's my sort of primary area. Now I'm a writer and an actor, but I still make films and I edit them. And I think about my editing process in the film video world. And I think I approach my writing very similar to that. And, and the editing world, the way I look at it is, and I do a lot of documentaries. So the first step is you, you've shot a whole bunch of footage. And then you lay it all in there and you start what I call cutting the radio show. It's just making sure that the audio all works and you lay that all out in a linear form and you close your eyes and you listen. Is it making sense? Are all the areas covered? Then you start thinking of the next layer. Okay, now this next layer is B-roll. Do I have visuals that will accompany each of these things? Can a visual tell the story where I don't need the words underneath it now? And if I do, then I can pull that out. Then comes the third level. Are there other voices that I can bring in now to support this point of view? So each one becomes a layer on top of the previous layer. And that's how I build. It's kind of like building a brick wall. And, and then at the end, the graphics, the names, the, the, if there are any kind of visual details that are different. Then there's also joiners. So, for example, you, you have this great moment and then you need a break. And the break could be musical it could be a visual symbolic treatment and then you move to the next thing i kind of think of at least it's the it's the way i know how to write and that's how i've been writing i've been following this idea of kind of creating the basics and adding each layer you know and then i'm looking at okay what kind of a weapon is it Uh, that comes much later and in my first layer he's just he he beats him over the head with a club well okay what kind of a club is it does it have any special properties and so on and so on. Is he left-handed or right-handed? That comes later. But I just try to basically, as I said, see, see something in my head and put it down and then start going into other layers at that point. Makes sense. Do you have any advice to listeners who may be looking to start a serial? Well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this because I've never done this before. And if I can do it, so can you. So, you know, just get out there and, and, and do the work because it's, it's fun. See, in the end, I'm doing this because I want to. I enjoy it. It's, it's the journey. The process is something I enjoy. Is there an end goal? Sure. It would be wonderful if a whole bunch of people read it and love it, and that would be great. But if I'm not enjoying the process and all I'm looking at is the end goal, then it's, it's just going to be work. So if you enjoy the process and if you enjoy all these bits and things that you learn along the way and, and how you're applying this and how you're applying that, and how my filmmaking and my acting and all the work that I've done before are all informing my ability to write, and I'm having fun, and, and it's, it's a great journey, 
what, what, what's wrong with this? It's a great picture. So if you enjoy writing, I think you should do it and get it out there and, and, uh, and have fun with it. Awesome. Well, that was amazing. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, yeah, yes, thank, thank you. you. Great. <laughs> Our thanks today to Shiva Kumar for letting us break down their episode. Finally, we want to thank you for listening to the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and we'll see you next time with another Serial Fiction episode. And that's a wrap. And that's a wrap. <laughs> Forever. Infinity. Oh, that was a depressed one. And that's a wrap. <laughs> Are you ready? Deal. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>